It is shocking that your home can be stolen this easily. Let me share a true story. Deborah learned that brutal lesson when thieves found the title to her home online. Then they forged the documents to appear she sold her home, but she hadn't. Then they borrowed thousands using her home's equity. Deborah didn't know she was a victim until foreclosure notices arrived and an eviction notice followed. She spent her fortune trying to get her home back. The crime is home title fraud, and the FBI calls it one of the fastest growing crimes. The best advice for avoiding a title fraud nightmare is to protect your home with home title lock. And no, neither your homeowner's insurance nor bank protects you. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock does. So first things first, find out if you're already a victim of home title fraud. Register your home at HomeTitleLock.com and enter SAVE for one month of free protection. Again, enter SAVE for one month of free protection at HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. Welcome to Amped Up with Proud Resistor. This is progressive activist Ryan Knight. And I'm Chris Lavoy of The Stephanie Miller Show. And our guest today is Dr. Elwood Watson. He is an author, a professor of history, African-American studies, and gender studies. And his new book, Keeping It Real, Essays on Race and Contemporary America, is out in stores now. Elwood, welcome to Amped Up. Good morning. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, uh, we're doing good. Um, before we talk about your book, I, I want to get your reaction to a few current events. Uh, yesterday, the President of the United States suggested to the American people that disinfectants could be injected oh. into a human body oh, to kill the coronavirus. Oh. Shortly after Trump made the insane statement, doctors around the country were issuing statements telling the American people to not inject Clorox bleach, and that to seek medical help if you are feeling symptoms of the coronavirus. Also, the makers of, of Lysol, a, a popular disinfectant, had to issue a press release this morning telling people not to inject themselves with disinfectant. Uh, we have over 50,000 Americans are dead, and our president is telling people to inject themselves with bleach. Elwood, what goes through your mind when our president makes a statement like this? Stark raving insanity on the part of President Trump. Mm. Yeah, there's no other word to describe it. Absolutely, stark raving insanity. Yep, grossly irresponsible. I agree, right. and, espe- and especially in a time like this, right when when the American people are are scared, they're going through not only this this health crisis. Uh, but th- also an economic crisis the pandemic has brought on. And, you know, people are looking for leadership. And we're just, obviously, I mean, I think time and time again, we've proven that just Trump is not up to the occasion. He is incapable of being a leader. And in fact, instead of making situations like this better and guiding us through a crisis like this, he makes, he, he almost adds, it's a whole other crisis. Because in addition to going through the coronavirus, we have the crisis of incompetency and insanity in the Oval Office. Totally agree. Uh, totally agree. I mean, that, that was, I was just uh, dumbfounded when I uh, just, uh, you know, heard uh, those words come out of his mouth. I was like, I could not believe. It. First of all, he's not a doctor. He's not a medical doctor. And to thank you to give uh, to a 
to relay that type of information to the American public, you know, was just, like I said earlier, just grossly irresponsible. I, I was just, you know, like I said, you said it best. It's a total lack of leadership, just, you know, blatant incompetence. And it's just at this time we're in right now when the world, not even just the United States, the entire world is enduring a pandemic of this magnitude. Uh, it's just totally, totally, you know, it's nothing short of abominable. Right. You know, and, and also it's, again, like I just mentioned, it's not just that we're seeing our, our, our grandparents and our brothers and sisters get sick and, and die. We're, we're also faced with an economic crisis right now. Over 24 million Americans are now unemployed. People are waiting in 10-hour food lines. And millions of Americans are struggling to afford basic necessities like food, housing, and health care. Uh, so you think this would be a moment for Congress to step up and provide relief to the American people. But instead, what we're seeing is Congress is bailing out giant corporations and giving breadcrumbs to the people. Do you think that Congress needs to do more than just provide the American people a one-time check of $1,200? Absolutely. Uh, definitely. Uh, I mean, to me, it just kind of shows the, the detachment uh, from, well, certain members of Congress. I, I wouldn't say every single member of Congress, but there is that, there's been that detachment from yep. Congress and the real world of what's going out outside the Beltway. And I think they don't know that many people out here are struggling. And like I said, they're really hurting. I've seen some of the food banks on TV. You see, you know, uh, here where I live in uh, the part of Tennessee, there's, you know, largely a, a number of people, you know, going to the Salvation Army every day or, you know, well, going when they can, you know, to right. pick up supplies and essentials and the like. And I mean, that's just not here in the South. It's nationwide. And there's just this, I would say, a combination of detachment, indifference, and cluelessness uh, that, that among some members in Congress as it relates to this uh, situation, and they don't seem to uh, they don't seem to really grip the magnitude of the problem. Uh, uh, and, and if they do, they just seem to be, as I said earlier, indifferent to it, and that's just totally, totally unacceptable. Yeah, it's almost like they're living in their own little bubble, you know, like this Washington bubble yep. that. And they are, they're disconnected from the pain of everyday Americans and of the pain and struggle of their constituents. And, you know, as a, prog as a progressive activist, I work to elect members of Congress who will put the people over their corporate donors, you know, because that to me, you know, Trump is the worst president in modern history. No doubt, no questions. I mean, I, I'm fully, I fully believe that to my core and to my soul. But a lot of these systemic issues that were that the coronavirus is only enlightening have been around for a long time. And one of my fears is that, you know, if we did, if we just think that we're going to get rid of Trump, which I hope we do and which we need to do, and that all of a sudden we think that, like, everything's going to be OK again. Like, that's a fairy tale, because underneath Donald Trump, there's layers and layers of systemic rot in our economy in our healthcare system and in our political system that it props up the ruling class and screws over the working class. And I just feel like we're at this breaking point where if we don't get leaders who will fight for the people, this nation will collapse, right? It's too top heavy. You can't have so much wealth at the top while the people are just carrying the nation on their back. I would say, as you just said, I think Trump is a symptom of a larger problem. And I think as you just said it well, very well and very eloquently, that it's been a, it's a, 
there's been a, a lot of systemic problems in our nation that have been, you know, cultivated over time, and it's just the it's just like I said, this wealth is not. I don't think the American people begrudge uh, people making money, but it's just the kind of wealth gaps that we have in our nation. This yep. country always had a, it. Used to be one thing about this country up until about the 1980s that you've always had the wealthy class because that's nothing new. But you always had upper mobility. And that began to change during the Reagan years, and now it's to the point where you're seeing it was supposed to be each generation was supposed to do better than the uh, than the uh, preceding generation, uh, and uh, that is no longer becoming the case at all. And what is happening is you're having people who are largely working, and they're coming what you call the working poor. I mean, people are literally working and can't even pay their bills, and that to me, when you have people making hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars per year, some cases even months, you know, and we have these widening, ever-widening wealth gaps, and the kind of wealth gaps really we have not seen in the United States since the Gilded Age. That in and of itself is just totally, totally unacceptable, where these wealth gaps are really, and even some millionaires and uh, wealthy people uh, have even come to, you know, themselves have made public statements saying, we're going to have to do something about these wealth gaps in this country. Right, and we're seeing that it disproportionately impacts the the African American community and people of color, where the the wealth gap, you know, the black white wealth gap in America is almost worse than it was right before the civil rights period. I mean, that when there's inequality in America, it always seems to hit people of color the hardest. You know, why is that? Are our systems inherently racist? I mean, obviously, yes, they are. But how do we fix that? How do we correct these systems which seem to perpetuate? not only inequality against all Americans, but even more inequality against people of color, especially when it comes to economic issues. Well, it's that old saying, which is largely true, when uh, white America gets the cold, black America and brown America get the flu. And there's definitely no <laughs> question, so there's no, uh, I don't think any reasonable person can dispute that. Yes, uh, right. several reasons a lot of that. There's obviously legacies of historical discrimination, systemic and systematic racism, past and present. Uh, right. You know, redlining, uh, access mm-hmm. to jobs, level of education, uh, act disparities in health care, all those things are a result of systemic and systematic racism, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously. I mean, much of it is consciously, unfortunately. Uh, but I think that uh, those things certainly result in when you've been deprived of any type of, you know, equality for centuries, despite whatever programs may come along within the mid-1960s, which they did, and they were certainly beneficial, you know, such as, you know, I cannot dismiss the, the impact of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act that was passed the following year by Congress. But you also have to realize, as then-President Lyndon Johnson said, you just can't take a man and put him at the front line and say you're equal when you've been deprived of, you know, basic humanity and decency for centuries, which was the case in the United States as, as it related to African Americans. What the Civil Rights Bill of 1964 did for black people and people of color, it pretty much gave us the status of immigrants. And then, uh, and then, like I said, if you were living in the South in 1965, prior to 1965, you were living under an apartheid system. You could not vote. You know, you had to pay taxes. You could do. You had to, what? You could go to war if you were male, whatever. But you still could not vote. That was like apartheid inside the old South Africa. So, prior to 1990s. So, I mean, to me, you know, you take a group of people that have been dehumanized psychologically, financially, emotionally, religiously on some level. Uh, that does not eradicate itself overnight. And coupled with the changing economy and the dynamics that are taking place right now, uh, it just it makes for a very, very, very desolate situation. Uh, how that mm. can change 
is that there's going to have to be investments, as I see it, within communities, genuine investments that are going to take mm. place. There has to be, I think we need a Marshall Plan for our urban and rural areas. Uh, you know, uh, like we need to have, you know, first time home, uh, you know, first time home buyer pro- uh, uh, programs, uh, you know, as yes. well. I would say student uh, debt, the student loan forgiveness, total student loan forgiveness, uh, you know, our free college and tuition. Those, you know, like I said, uh, you know, certainly access to better health care. I mean, there are a variety of things that certainly could be implemented in an effort to, you know, uh, you know, reduce that gap and to assuage the level of pain and desolation that's taking place in many uh, communities of color. Those are yeah, some of the know, ideas I would recommend. I think you, you, you hit all you hit all the areas. One of the things that, that I've my eyes been have been opened up to recently is is just as I've studied history is that one of the biggest ways I think and one of the biggest issues behind the black white wealth gap is housing. Because the biggest asset that an that an American family has that they pass on from generation to generation is their is their home, right? Is their property. But our government literally prevented African Americans from owning property. You know, when with things like redlining, and 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 you know, you can trace it back even further than that. I mean, they weren't even you know you know. So that to me, right, is the lack of the the ability because of state sponsored discrimination that people that the African American community couldn't pass on, couldn't own homes and build their assets through that, right? I mean, is that a big part of this? Right. Well, sharecropping in the South, in many places in the South, it was sharecropping, you know, uh, sharecropping. Right. Uh, as well. Yeah, there was, there, what, what has happened in the black community and over many years, unlike some other communities, there's never been any degree of transferable wealth. So, mm. yes, and I think that in and of itself has been certainly uh, problematic. And um, a lot of people, well, a, a sizable number of people who will say, well, why don't African Americans adopt the experience of this ethnic group or that ethnic group? And look what they did and look what they did. Well, you can't really compare the experience of African Americans to other ethnic groups because the total experience has been totally different. Even some conservatives uh, like Ann Coulter and Pat Buchanan, these are not what you call left wingers by any means. <laughs> they, have right. they have acknowledged that fact that the experience of African Americans uh, in this country are, has been dramatically different than others, in which it has. Other groups to this country, the, the, the this is not to say they didn't come to America to escape certain degrees of, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, certain, you know, certain degrees of, um, you know, uh, mistreatment or, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, desolate conditions. But they still came to the United States with a certain degree of voluntarism. African Americans, that was not the case. You know, you came to this country, a land that you were, you were robbed of your culture, your religion, your basically your human dignity. And whereas a lot of other groups came, and certainly there was all they started maybe sold newspapers, you know, fruit grocery stands or whatever the case may be. With a black America, I would say you pretty much had what you call the inverted pyramid. After slavery, you had a 99% illiteracy rate, illiteracy, the inability to read. And, hmm. you know, you didn't have the NACP. You didn't have a lot of organizations. You know, you have a group of people that are 99% illiterate. Then you're told you're free. And then, you know, uh, you're, you know, kind of forced to kind of fit for yourself on some level. Then you got to places, a few people who are illiterate, and then you get a few HBCUs, historical black college universities. You know, you pretty much right after that, you have the uh, in, in Tennessee, uh, another part of the nation, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, which starts in different ways. But you do have a brief period of political enfranchisement in the South and other parts of the country called Reconstruction, which mm-hmm. ends in 1877. That's from 1866 to 1877 when then President Rutherford B. Hayes and his vice president, Samuel Tillman, pulled the Union troops out of the South, and which pretty much gave the South back to 
you know, white supremacists and the Dixiecrats and others as well. And then you begin to see again, you know, uh, a reign of economic and political terror as it hurt black people, you know, in, in the form of grandfather clauses, you know, Jim Crow, color white water fountains, outright extra legal violence, lynchings, murders, and others. So basically for a brief decade, pretty much slightly over a decade, there was a certain degree of black, you know, politically uh, re- uh, enfranchisement or reconstruction. From 1866 to 1877, you had a few black senators and governors and the like, and, uh, you know, businessmen and others. But that was very, very short-lived. And like I said, when, you know, uh, President then Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden, they pretty much um, gave the South back, you know, to, uh, to uh, you know, to, you know, to, to the, to the to the racist crowd and um and pretty much people talk about the, the civil war and and, and uh, um others who want to say the south won the civil war southerners who were in denial about the civil war initially as well technically one could argue in a figuratively speaking manner one could argue that the south pretty much did win the civil war until about the 1950s and 60s because for the most of the part the life the lifestyle that many southerners wanted as far as segregation and others did reign supreme for a large part and maybe historically speaking on the history books no it did not win the war but as far as the way of life in some ways, one could argue the South did, really did win the Civil War. Now, I'm not saying it did for those out there listening. The South did not win the Civil War from a historical <laughs> perspective. But I'm saying from a figurative perspective and a psychological perspective, the South, one could argue, did win the Civil War on some, in, some, in some manners. So let's get that right. straight. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I look at things just very common sense. And when you have a government that has historically discriminated against a certain community, it's probably a little hard to build wealth, right, and to, and to advance your career, you know, in the 50s, 60s, while you're actively being discriminated against, right? I mean, isn't that a fair assessment? That it is Absolutely. hard, right? I mean, it's just pretty basic stuff. Like, how do you go into a society that's actively discriminating against you, and you have a government that is practicing housing discrimination against you and redlining against you, and how do you build wealth? Why you face these ginormous obstacles? It's just so basic. Well, you can't. I mean, what I mean, right. is that simple? You cannot. Right. I mean, you know, you just you know, yeah. you blatantly when you're facing blatant legal discrimination, and like I said, up until the mid 1960s, you know, it was legally you could legally discriminate against somebody based on race. However, over time, they realized after 1964, I can't overtly do this, but I could also find ways to discriminate in other ways. If a person comes in to the office, you know, anybody see they see the black skin or the black face or the brown skin or whatever the case may be, they or um, and in some cases gender women, they can you know they might say you know speak to you very cordially and you know say all the quote unquote right things to you and stuff. But at the end, when you leave, they could either throw your resume in a trash can or they could put on the back not a fit or you know use a code word or whatever you know to, 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 to identify this particular resume and you don't get a call back. Okay, right. <laughs> you know, so you know, you know, get called at all. So I mean, there's a different ways how people can discriminate economically. We certainly, as you said earlier in our, in our conversation, economic discrimination, and certainly there, you know, redlining and stuff. A lot of times, people may say, "We're not going to tell you you can't live here. We're just going to make it so expensive that you can't afford to live here." You mm-hmm. know, so I mean, those dynamics—that's a form of discrimination in and of itself as well. So I mean, you know, so I mean, there's di- there are all type of ways that people can, you know, certainly enforce. Uh, systemic, systematic racism and discrimination, whether it be economically, you know, judicially and, uh, as well. So, and that's certainly been the case as it relates to, you know, African-Americans and uh, certain other groups in this country for, you know, for centuries. Yeah. Let's shift the conversation and talk about uh, Keeping It Real, your new book, uh, Essays on Race in Contemporary America. I just started reading it uh, at the beginning of the week. It is fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank uh, you. Someone like me, I, I have major ADD. And so reading is, I love to read, but it's always hard for me to sit and focus and, and read 
because I have a lot of energy and, and again, it can be, but this book, what I love about this book is it's, it's broken into little chunks. So like there's, there's multiple little sections where you cover everything from white supremacy to white fragility to all issues that have impacted the black community in America over the last 10 years. But it's written in like these small little manageable, you know, chewable segments, which really helps someone like me. Um, you know, I want to talk about early in the book, you know, point out that, uh, too many white Americans naively assumed that because we elected the first black president, that it meant that all of a sudden we were living in a post-racial society. Then, of course, Donald Trump happened, and we saw real quickly that that wasn't the case. But also, if you just step back, we have unarmed black men are still getting murdered by the police. You have the racial wealth gap is, is worse than it's almost ever been. Black women are being paid less than their white counterparts. Uh, the systemic injustices against black people didn't go away just because we elected a black president. And if anything, now because of Trump, they've gotten worse as he's provided aid and comfort to white supremacists. Elwood, where, where did this post-racial America myth come from? And isn't it dangerous to minimize the systemic injustices happening to black Americans right now? Uh, yeah, so to, uh, to answer the second part of your question first, yes, it is very dangerous. It was a myth, and it was dangerous to, to minimize that, 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 that we're living in a post-racial society. Uh, we've never lived in a post-racial society. I think that was uh, a very, very utopian phrase given by others, you know, particularly some people, and some people on the left as well, uh, from primarily on the left who wanted to believe that we lived in a, now that we have a black president, the racism no longer exists, you know, that mm -hmm. we know somehow all of a sudden, you know, um, uh, that took care of racism pretty much, you know, wherever, whenever it quote unquote started, which is Bobby since the beginning of time. And I guess you could, you know, put it on a tombstone and ended in 2008, supposedly after November 2008, uh, <laughs> Obama, you know, election. Well, no, it didn't, you know, it resurrected itself. But, but then it I mean, you've got to be living in a bubble to think that. But I'm right? saying, exactly. You know, so the racism yeah. is never, you know, quite frankly, I, 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 and I don't even like that term, post racial. I mean, while I, I don't yeah. want to be post racial, I don't want to be post gender. You know, I want both genders and I love society living. I mean, what does that mean? post-racial, post-gender. To me, that means, like, race is no longer, you know, we don't have, we don't have different races, we don't have different genders. Well, no, I think that's, that in of itself is a kind of very, very, you know, um, naive and kind of, you know, irresponsible term to uh, uh, to even uh, to espouse. So, no, I mean, mm -hmm. but I think there are people who felt that upon the election of the nation's first African-American president that, you know, somehow, you know, racism was no longer a problem. And you heard people literally saying that, you know, and a few, yep. people, few people of color begin to, uh, briefly begin to believe that that was the reality, but mostly I would say the vast majority of people who felt that were white Americans, and I would say most people of color were never going to really be that naive to believe that somehow racism was going to be eradicated. No, you know, no. Well, and I think it's a very lazy take, and again, I think it's a yes. dangerous take, because look at, well, look at what's happening right now with the coronavirus. We are Absolutely. seeing that black Americans are being disproportionately impacted, and, and in some communities, as many as 70% of the fatalities are black Americans. And a lot of that is because of lack of access to health care and a lot of these systemic issues that impact black America. And so when you just make lazy statements like, yeah, we live in a post-racial society, it stops us from doing the work that it's going to take for us to heal a lot of the injustice that, that, is, that is directed at the black community, right? Yes. Uh, um, like I said, that's going to be, that's something that has been, uh, you know, Part in the nation's DNA and the fabric of our nation, you know, since you know African Americans arrived on the shores of our nation in the six, you know 1600s. So that's nothing new, and it's been ongoing. 
Uh, so, yeah, and that's something that is really, I think part of the problem there is that um, there has been obviously resistance past the present. Mm. And there, quite frankly, there has been outright white denial. Uh, as I said in my, mm-hmm. one of the essays in my book, White Fragility, White Denial. And I think there are people who don't really want to believe. A lot of people dyna- uh, see the racism. There are many people who see racism as long as they don't, they're not a member of the, any white supremacist group, or they may feel they're, uh, they're free of racism simply because they don't have a white hood and a sheet in their closet, or they don't have swastikas <laughs> in their jar, you know, yours, you know, or they feel somehow that they're free of, you know, uh, that they're result of any degree of racism. Well, that's not necessarily true. A lot of times, racism, is, Phil Donahue used to say, we used to have a talk show in the 90s, 80s and 90s, uh, uh, the Phil Donahue show, he said, racism can be a lot like cancer. You may not be aware of the fact that you have it. And I think racism can be uh, a disease on some level, because I think a lot of people who, a certain number mm-hmm. of people, some people are well aware of their racial identities and white supremacists, people like that, and they are racially consciously bigoted. But I think there are some people who may not necessarily be aware of the fact that they have racism or any other kind of, you know, you know, isms within them, as I call them, the multiple isms, racism, sexism, you know, anti-Semitism. And they may not be aware of the fact that they have them. Uh, but they're there, and they do manifest themselves in other ways. And if people confront them about it, they're in a, their degree of denial, and they, you know, they, they will, you know, fight you to the death to say I am not this, I am not that, or whatever. And they will revert to other reasons as to why they're not. You know, well, I have mm-hmm. a black friend, or I have a women friend, or whatever. Da, 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 whatever. And that doesn't necessarily absolve you from racism. I mean, you know, in the South, in particular, a lot of South blacks and whites had strong proximity to one another. A lot of whites may have loved those individual blacks that worked for them or they knew individual blacks, but outside of the rest of the black people, they probably despise and would decide both to lynch all of them. You know, so my point is, I'm just saying to me, is that, that um, uh, that's a strong term to use, but I think that um, just because you have one or two friends of a certain race, or you, or you see somebody else differently, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are free of racism. You can still be a bigot, or whatever, but, you know, that, you know, and still may like one individual of a, of a particular group. I mean, I think a good example of that was, I know this is Hollywood, and I probably shouldn't necessarily want to bring him up, Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are probably mm-hmm. certain individual Jewish people Mel Gibson liked, but we know he certainly was a blatant anti-Semite, or, you know, we all right. had issues with black people. I'm sure he probably loved Denzel Washington, he probably loved Danny Glover, and the people in the movies, Whoopi Glover, so the people in the movies he worked with, he probably thought very, very highly of, but that didn't necessarily mean he liked that group of people in, the, in general. I mean, you can find that with a lot of people. So. Mm. You know, one of the things I, I mean, if, 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 if racism didn't exist in America anymore, then Donald Trump couldn't have used it and weaponized it to get elected in 2016, right? Let's just make that clear. If, there were, if, if people weren't so susceptible to racism, then he, he wouldn't, you know, because that's the way I look at it. And you talk about this very precisely in your book, that Trump weaponized a politics of white supremacy to rise to power in 2016. And, I mean, all of us could see it, besides, I think, the media, the mainstream media especially, who talked around it and danced around it and skirted around the subject. I mean, I think it was, I don't think it was until 2018 that the first mainstream publication actually called Trump a racist. I mean, they, they, they just refused to use the word. I mean, that was like the first year and a half of the Trump presidency. The mainstream media was actually scared to use the R word, even though everything he was doing was blatantly race baiting and blatantly racist. But here's my question for you. What does it psychologically do to a person of color when someone, and in this case, the president of the United, the president of our country, rises to power by scapegoating them and otherizing them? Like, what does that do to a person? Explain to our listeners. 
but first of all, could endanger them in many ways, you know, especially given the climate that we were living in. And I mean, as you said earlier on, right? Yeah, I think the reader just did not want to come out and use the word racially charged comments. Like, what right. do you mean? What is that <laughs> racial? I mean, you know, racially charged. I mean, you know, racially charged. I mean, like, I heard racially charged. I mean, like saying, it's almost like saying, you know, you know, well, she's semi-pregnant. I mean, I mean, well, you know, you, you know that's, that's, really, I mean, you know, it's just like, what are y'all? What, that's crazy. I mean, just so the media, I think, it was blatantly irresponsible. Um, and uh, and how it uh, well segments of the media segments of the media, let's just say segment uh, and how they you know certainly covered Donald Trump. I mean you know this is the yep. man who started off his campaign talking about Mexican Americans or Mexicans who come to, across the border. I mean that was I mean that was a blatant and I think they kind of took Donald Trump as some kind of a, you know a minor nuisance a joke and I think they, he was good yeah uh, he was good you know he was cheap news news for them you know people would tune in to hear what he had to say and they would cover his rallies and others and I think there was almost like. Just um, you know, just I think they gave him you know they didn't I think they were playing with fire and eventually you know, they showed the country got burnt because of it and I think that yeah. um, and that's something the media is going to have to really do some serious reflection on historians is you know like myself later on as people start writing books you know you know forty fifty years from now it's going to be interesting to see how the media is covered and you know how they how they view the impact the media had on Donald Trump's election and I think the media the, had a significant impact on him getting elected you know as well this doesn't mean the media, the media gave him five billion dollars and media. Think about that. Think about that. Think about it. He could call in. Other people had to actually be on TV. He could call in when he wanted to. You know what I mean? He could have, yep. They would call him from wherever he was. You know, well, they'll call. He'll call him. Or, well, Mr. Trump, President, uh, candidate Trump is having a rally here in Davo, and he's having a rally here in wherever. They would just meet wherever they were cut, wherever they were doing, they would cut. CNN was just yep. horrendous about it. They would cut right to wherever he was giving a rally. So, I mean, it was just like, yep. like all that free air, like the media time, the other candidates were not. Uh, uh, afforded, and I think, and as a result, you know, we saw that dynamic. Now, this doesn't mean that. Um, but this is another whole topic within itself. And uh, but you know, Hillary Clinton was not necessarily the best candidate. You know, and there was a lot of flaws within the Clinton campaign and stuff as well. But therefore, but I think the media definitely did a lot to, uh, uh, you know, assure Donald Trump his, uh, 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 you know, victory in 2016. And, and, and I think so. Yeah, I think it had a lot to do to do as well. The answer to get to your other question: What calls is. Um, it can certainly it puts you know we saw how people were being attacked and and, and targeted you know um, in some cases even before the election look at some of the Trump rallies look at how some people who were there and you know even the journalists the media themselves were you know targeted you know Trump said they were liars or enemies of the people and the like and you know you saw a bunch of American Mexican American was spit on by a, a Trump supporter in 2016 at the um, at one of the conferences and then you saw you know a young black lady who was being pushed uh, you know around and pushed out by. Um, uh, uh, you know, sort of Trump supporters and things of the nature. So you know, you saw that, and particularly after the election when he won, you know, if, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, for about a, about a better part of a month, you saw various uh, acts of you know uh, racial harassment, and I would even call it terrorism. And in some cases, where you know, uh, you know, Asian people were being targeted, you know, Muslim people were being targeted. Uh, in some cases, the lacks were being targeted. You had people riding around and pick up trucks. You know, you had a, a, I think two fraternity brothers went to a female campus, uh, all women's campus in New England. But now they were thrown out of their fraternity, but they were, you know, going around saying, you know, now that Trump's president, uh, you know, you know, um, you know, hey, chicks, now that Trump's president, we're going to make you, you know what, um, you know, it rhymes, it's kind of blatant, you know, but we're going to make you, you know, do a certain, to a certain part of our body. You know, so, you know, you, you kind of read between the line there. But, um, 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 but, I mean, so you had all that kind of, you know, sexism, racism, and, you know, and, and that's, you know, anti-Semitism, you know, or talks of synagogues and stuff as well. There were in mosques, things like that as well, religious hatred that were certainly, uh, was certainly being, you know, uh, manifested throughout the country, you know, as well. So, I mean, that what you, that's what you saw. And you're seeing pockets of it now. Just recently, there was a guy in Boston. Uh, was, I, don't, I don't want to give, give the wrong state, but it was here on the East Coast where, um, it might have been Michigan, where they, uh, the guy was arrested for um, 
attempting to uh, uh, target a senior citizen, uh, a Jewish senior citizen center, you know, uh, uh, to blow it up. Just last week, I think it was, it was the New York Times. Mm. I mean, you're seeing all these type of dynamics. Just recently, um, the Bernie Sanders rally, I guess about a month ago, maybe two months ago, when somebody yep. furled a Nazi flag at yep. the Bernie Sanders rally. I mean, think about 2020, 2020, <laughs> unfurled a Nazi flag at a Bernie Sanders rally. I mean, yep. and he was quickly escorted out, rightly so. But I was like, I mean, I tweeted that myself. I said, can you believe this? I said, look, at this is 2020. I said, welcome. I said to myself, you know, welcome to Trump America. Now, I mean, is Trump responsible for racism? Did he develop and create racism? No, but certainly he is certainly, I mean, he was here long before any of us were born, including Trump. But the reality is he has certainly, you know, agitated and certainly, you know, uh, you know, tweaked with it. And he certainly, certainly, you know, um, manipulated it to try to suit his own perverse aim. Well, absolutely. I call it trickle-down racism. You know, the president like of the it. United States gives people permission, right? With, with the way he behaves, he sets the tone. And, and so when he goes and he equivocates after Charlottesville, and he said that, you know, both that there were very fine people on both sides, and equivocating, you know, anti-fascist protesters to neo-Nazis, you know, and white supremacists, that was the moment I knew, okay, this is, we are in some serious trouble here. Because there's no equivocation, right? There are no very fine neo-Nazis. Um, you know, so he, he's created this climate where, you no, know, Trump didn't invent racism, but he, you know, he brought out all of the worst demons that we had been fighting for the last 50 years since the civil rights movement, since MLK, you know, led the fight for civil rights. I mean, he brought out all those demons that, that had kind of gone into the cave or gone under their rock. And he just kind of, you know, opened a opened a rock and all the worms came crawling out and all these white supremacists like came crawling out of their closets is, is kind of the way I look at it. You know, I also like to always, you know, reverse things. Could you imagine if Barack Obama had, had ran a campaign and rose to power by blaming and scapegoating white people? Like literally, because that's what Trump did. Trump ran a campaign by blaming and scapegoating and demonizing immigrants and people of color. Could you imagine if it was the other way around? I mean, the outrage from Fox News would be at level 1,000. Right. Well, first of all, it would never happen because he would never got that far as he would never became the president. You know, right. there's no person of color who would have been able to have done uh, some of the things, you know, Donald Trump had done. Uh, you know, any woman who could have done it, you know, blatantly engaged in a very blatantly, you know, uh, sexist campaign, uh, anti-male campaign, and got that, got as far as they would have. So that would that would not have been that would have never gotten to that point. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it would have been the, if, uh, Obama, you know, as president, said some half the things once after he was president. And so you know, even one fraction of the things that Trump has made and comments and behaved in the manner that he has, that you know, there would have been just you know outrage. I mean, you know, the Congress right now, the Republican Congress, the GOP Congress, would be probably getting letters of impeachment. You know, the writing, the people writing the Congress demand that the president be impeached. You know, I mean, so, you know, President Bobby impeached. I mean, their level of outrage would have been just off the charts. And I think mm -hmm. that, um, you know, they, they talked about how President Obama vacation here and Michelle Obama stuff. They didn't vacation nowhere near as much as the Trumps have done that, or you know, spend as much taxpayers' money. But it, it's like it's almost like within pockets of the right, there's almost like cricket. You know, a silence. Somebody talks about it, but I think that um, right. and Trump's antics have been anything but you know civil or even rational. And and as a way by like, Obama had even behaved one you know uh, you know fractionally responsible as he did. When I say he did, I mean talk Trump. There would be a. Um, you know, there would have been, you know, there, like I said, there would have been calls for impeachment. There would be no question about it. I mean, radical calls for impeachment, you know, be, you know, uh, as well. Now, your, your comment about, you know, uh, racism's categorical, the race had always been there. Trump just gave, like mm -hmm. you said, a green light to, you know, certainly uh, to expose themselves. We saw that in Charlottesville, and that was what I think it kind of shocked a lot of people and didn't shock me because I studied, you know, racism and stuff like that as well. But 
where you had the grown, you had the young men, men, the vast majority of them seemed to be a lot of people like shot because these were not people in their fifties and sixties. You know, these are young people in their twenties and thirties. Um, uh, a few women were in the march, but it was almost like ninety-eight percent male. And I mean, you know, these are people who were not wearing, you know, the traditional hoods. They didn't look very, very unkept, or you know, you know, you know. They were wearing red, red hats and, and khaki pants. Polo shirts and khaki pants. Yes, exactly. And this was this, this was, was not like by design. This was like not. But this was not. This was by design. This was not. Um, this was. Uh, this is the image that you know white supremacist groups, people who studied it, but something like over the years, they've definitely tried to move for away from. Uh, you could always have a meaningless segment, but you're going to definitely. They've tried to suit tie it up, so to speak. You know, they've tried to make it more like the face. They want the face of white supremacists to be Richard, Richard Spencer, or Jared Taylor of America Renaissance, or Richard Spencer. They want to, you know, the and that's always been that element in the white supremacist movement. Even within the white supremacist movement, you've had whites of different factions who are largely and have predominated certain aspects of uh, factions of the white supremacist movement. By that I mean, historically speaking, the Ku Klux Klan tended to be lower income whites by and large. You said they had middle class whites and other things in it. But a lot of times the doctors, the lawyers, the professors, the business people, they didn't really want to be associated with the Klan. They saw the Klan as kind of violent and white trash and that type of dynamic of lower income whites who were derelict. So they started the White Citizens Council. You know, they were the ones who were the White Citizens Council. And they were the ones who largely, poor whites, historically speaking, had always done the, dirt, the, the, the dirty work. So, I mean, when I say the lynchings and the violence, the poor whites were the ones who largely handled those type of things as well. Whereas rich whites and upper class whites were the ones who uh, enforced those laws, the state legislatures and things like that. They're the ones who passed laws to restrict, you know, access and, you know, and uh, civil rights to African America. So it was basically, largely, it's always been a joint effort. Uh, it had been a joint effort as well. So, and now, granted, with the wealth gaps that having in our country, those things are becoming more and more fractionalized in this well. But historically speaking, you know, racism, we've always said, we've always had this impression, well, some people have had this impression that, you know, rich racism has pretty much been a poor white person's phenomenon. Well, no, I mean, who do you think was in law? Who do you think was enforcing these laws? Who do you think was even in Congress, by and large, basically making these laws to pass this country? Rich white people were the ones who largely wanted to break up blacks and whites in the South in the 1890s when there were worse periods where whites and blacks try to work together to, you know, for better union nights and everything else. And the, the wealthier uh, gentry class saw this and said, well, we better do something about this because they realized that, they, you know, them working together could certainly, you know, cause them trouble. And they did everything they could to um, pit blacks and whites against one another, you know, I mean? because at that time yep. you always had groups of people who worked together, but they, they did a divide and conquer and gave whites the psychological belief that somehow, that, you know, you saw that white skin and there's always that potential. I mean, it was interesting. Bill Maher did a story, uh, well, some, it was not Bill Maher, but it was on, he was showcasing Alexandria uh, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter. They did a segment of in the South about, you know, interviewing black people in the South and white people in the South and different parts of the nation about, um, but this is mostly on the, the South, focused on whites who were just living in rural, desolate poverty and stuff, but there was always that, in their mind, said that that breaks right around the corner. It's right around the corner. It's going to come, and I can, you know, eventually I'll move on. Psychology that has been indoctrinated in many whites. They somehow, you know, they they can just get that break. They'll and, and it'll be here if they work hard enough. They strive hard, strive hard enough, and others that they can make it. You know, and if you don't make it, it's because right. of, you know a fault of your own. It's not it's not the system necessarily. And I think that well, they, you know, I think not that that's what I think. I think that's what you have seen historically. Well, and what they what the, the sad part about all this you know, this white supremacy that Trump is unleashing is that what a lot of his base and his supporters don't understand is the same systemic injustice that they're perpetuating against people of color. The same injustice is being perpetuated against them by our, by our, by our government and our system, which prop up the ruling class and screw over the working class. Right. So like they're not doing any better under the Trump presidency. That to me is like the great tragedy of, of Trumpism. You know, Trump is a, 
Trump is a phony populist. None of his policies actually help working people. Right after he got elected, he gave corporations and billionaires massive tax cuts and rigged the system even more against working people. So this, again, like I said, it's the big tragedy of Trumpism, is that he turned Americans against Americans, got us all fighting with each other, while he was rigging the system even more against us. So the people who he incited and brought out their worst instincts are doing even worse off. There are no winners in this kind of race-baiting, white nationalism brand of politics. Nobody is winning except the plutocrats. Nobody is winning except, except for Jeff Bezos, who made $24 billion over the past three months. He's profiting off of this pandemic. Like, I don't think a lot of his base understands that, you know, they, they are not winning either. There's no winning happening. What winning would look like is if working class, black and brown and white people come together and fight for economic justice for all of working people in this country. But as long as we have one political party in the Republican Party that uses this turning us against each other, that unfortunately prevents us from organizing together and building a kind of nation that, that works for everybody and doesn't just work for the billionaire class. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, yes, I think you, 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 the jackpot hit, you hit it spot on. What is happening is that it also demonstrates the power of racism in our society and how deeply inflected it can be. The fact right. that some people would be willing to vote for Trump, you know, um, and somebody, because they actually interviewed people and said themselves, they didn't think their life would probably change too much dramatically either. Trump was in office. They realized he probably wasn't going to be able to do too much for them. But basically his, his, his rhetoric, they did believe he would, quote, unquote, you know, take care of these, you know, lazy minorities are taking money, you know, quote, unquote, lazy people, minority, people of color who are basically, you know, bankrupting the system and, and, messing up and, you know, taking their, quote, unquote, white people's hard-earned money. Well, that, we know, is nonsense. Pretty much, you know, corporations, the lobbyists, and other things like that in the United States, that's where, that's where, that's where those are the, that's the problem that's taking fear. You know, people, uh, a woman who is on, you know, let's say, for example, a woman who is on welfare or whatever, and she's getting so much money a month or whatever, that money that she's using, she's not getting that much, and it's going right back to the economy. This is not to say that right. people don't abuse the system. There are people like anybody else who abuse the system, but it's certainly not. The, the major problems in this country are the wealth gaps and, you know, things as well that are really messing over working class people. It's not pretty much, you know, uh, working women of color in the inner city or in rural areas. They're not, they're not really the problem as well. <laughs> you know, their problem is, like I said, you know, starts pretty much at the top. And it's the, as we were talking about earlier in the conversation, it's the, you know, it's basically, you know, the unfettered, level, you know, deregulation, you know, and those type of things as well that's really, really, you know, basically outsourcing, you know, taking, you know, jobs from, you know, in the Midwest or certain parts of the country and then moving them overseas, you know, where people work, you know, for maybe $10,000 a year, you know, or whatever, you know, and a fraction of what, you know, the workers in the United States were able to work for. So that's that's what it's a combination of a number of factors that certainly have caused, you know, pain and misery and, you know, among certain groups and certainly not people of color alone. Yeah. Well, and I just, I mean, imagine how good the propaganda and the fear-mongering must be to convince the American people that corporate socialism is better for them than democratic socialism, right? Think about that. Like, who in their right mind, if, if, if Americans were thinking in their right mind, would want their tax dollars to go to giant corporations over something like a single-payer Medicare for All healthcare system? You know what I mean? Like, that's the problem in America is that our taxes are going to endless wars and to corporate subsidies, corporate tax cuts, corporate bailouts. 
and our money is not going, our tax dollars are not going, and not being invested into the people and into things like Medicare for All, into programs like universal child care, into, you know, things that would actually benefit the working people. Right. Well, they're not, nobody's, the working people are not being told that themselves. They're not being told, you know, the media is not really necessarily espousing those stories, at least to the level they should right. be. And I think the American public, too. And if we're all fair, there are a lot of people who want to be left in the dark. I mean, I think a lot of people don't really want to be left. I mean, let's just, if we want to be, I mean, sad as that sounds, they, I think some people want to remain ignorant. They don't really want to. They talk about what they want to go know about Washington, but the less they know about Washington or whatever, and as long as they have their right. creature conference on some level, they're fine. And I feel like a lot right. of people don't really want to know too much about the truth because if they have to know about the truth, that innocence is gone. And then right. therefore they cannot necessarily, that's why a lot of people hated Martin King Jr. in the 1960s, you know, when he came along, because a lot of whites didn't necessarily want to, uh, uh, and historians have written about this as well, they didn't really want to reevaluate their facts about how they felt about black people prior to that time. And I think they saw a man like Martin King Jr. was articulate, you know, very, very, you know, eloquent, you know, well-spoken, refined, and, you know, at least the public and everything like that as well. And it really dispelled the myth that they had about black people. And, you know, and they really mm-hmm. didn't want to, they didn't really want, and then black people in general, they saw, you know, the marchers where many were well-dressed and, you know, articulate spokesmen for the march and everything else. So they didn't really want to see that. They wanted they had already had stereotypes about blacks that had been very, very, you know, more not necessarily positive or relatively negative. And I think that may forced white people, particularly with the event of television, we can't ignore the, the impact television had. King and Martin King Jr. and his and you know his allies were certainly very, very effective in using television and very adept to using it and the power of the media. But they didn't really want to, um, you know, have to deal with confront that. And I think it made a lot of people very resentful. So what I'm saying is. Even today, I think a lot of people are well aware of the fact that some of the problems are not other necessarily the people of, uh, people of color. Some people actually do believe that. But I think there are other people who realize that, that somehow they are being screwed over by larger forces because that has come out in the news a little more and more over and over over time. But they still don't want – it's almost that – go back to what I said earlier in the conversation. There's that degree of denial. I think a lot of people mm. just don't want to confront that that, 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 that. It's like the, it's like the elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about or the crazy ant upstairs in the basement. Yeah, everybody knows it's up there, but they they don't really they don't really know how to handle the problem. Yeah, I think that's well said. One thing I found fascinating, I mean, MLK is one of my heroes, and you know, I've studied a lot of the civil rights movement myself. But one thing I find really interesting about MLK's legacy is that yes, MLK fought and won the battle for civil rights in America, for social justice, for you know, getting rid of Jim Crow laws, and getting rid of, you know, blatant social discrimination in our country. But another thing that he was also fighting for was he fought against capitalism. He, he was also fighting for economic justice, not only for black people, but for poor working class white people, too. That was and, and what's interesting to me is there's been this, you know, everyone celebrates MLK on MLK Day every year and they remember the civil rights component. But it's almost like his legacy has been whitewashed and everyone forgets that, like, he was fighting against the repressive nature of capitalism, too. I mean, he had one of my favorite quotes is he and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, there is something deeply wrong with capitalism and that we must move toward a more just economic system. We must move toward a democratic socialism. And, you know, he also was fighting for universal basic income long before Andrew Yang, I think, was even born. So a lot of these progressive ideas now that are in the progressive movement, most of them started with people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, he talked about a universal guaranteed income before it was cool. You know, he was talking about economic justice before, long before anyone else talked about it. He talked about, a, you know, Medicare for all before people were talking about it. So 
why do you think, why is it that MLK is, that the, we all celebrate his, his civil rights accomplishments, but everyone forgets about his fight for economic justice. Why is that? Well, I think Martin Luther King Jr. would have said, you know, economic rights were a part of civil rights. And what he did was, he said, when he got Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the people who talked about the Vietnam War before it became very, very fashionable to do so. You know, he was very critical right. of the Vietnam War. He said himself, and that's, um, you know, he said there are, you know, poor white boys in rural areas, Hispanic boys in the barrio, and black boys in the city going to war. You know, they had disproportionate numbers, which was the case at that time, where, you know, where a lot of times that, that up until they stopped, stopped the, uh, you know, uh, deferments and stuff, that the you know, rich boys and many other wealthy boys, the well connected guys, were getting deferments. So, yeah, he was talking about that as well. But when he did that, you know, all of a sudden, well, he might be a communist after all. You know, some of the people like, you know, the New York Times basically told New York, told Dr. King, shut up and stay out of it. You know, there are people, even black middle-class leaders and others were saying, you know, King, you might cause irreparable harm to our movement when you try to equate the civil rights movement with Vietnam. He said it was all the same thing. So, yes, he saw, hmm. he began to see the capitalism was, you know, or at least abuse capitalism was a major problem. But, you know, when he started talking about the civil rights movement and poor people's march and others like that and stuff, that's when he got lost a lot of his support from a lot of, you know, mainstream America, the New York Times and others like that. You know, when he went to Chicago, talked about urban housing and, you know, and disparities in urban housing and like that as well. You know, when the South, whenever he talked about the South and marching in the South, the media would always kind of have these grand paper, you know, articles and everything else about, you know, the struggle and stuff. But there was no support for him after Chicago. And it was the beginning of a turning point. Some of the funding began to dry up. You know, he talked about, you know, what good does it make? He used the words, he goes, what does it make for a Negro or anyone else to be able to sit at a lunch counter if they can't afford they can't afford to buy anything there or go shop at a store? And a lot of these, you know, people, even the elites and like that as well, they didn't ride those buses. You know, they didn't have, you know, they didn't, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't um, do those type of things as well. And they were living largely, you know, segregated communities, gated communities and everything else. And they were not really, they might have sent checks to these organizations and they gave a lot of times lip service to integration. They may have a few prominent wealthy black celebrities or very prominent wealthy uh people of color, but by and large, your life is just segregated as some of the segregationists, you know, you know that mm. you can be playing to a bore. So, I mean, mm. King began to see that as time went along, and that's where I think a lot of people, again, didn't want the spotlight. Class has always kind of been America's dirty little secret. They didn't want to, was a, he was finding a shot, he was, you know, shining a spotlight on class. And, uh, right. That was what, you know, I think a lot of people got, made a lot of people very, 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 very uneasy, you know, because they realized those who do history, you know, they saw, you know, reckon, they probably read that flashback to the late 19th century when, you know, blacks and whites and union people were, talking about having a poor people's march, getting poor people of all races together and stuff. That would be a major threat to the, to the capitalist system. You know, it was a major threat. Right. They, they, they knew the potential of that, what that could, um, you know, uh, you know, result in. So that's, that's what, you know, that's, that's what, you know, that's what I think that a lot of people said, you know, King was kind of, you know, marginalized and shut down and a lot of other things. I think the people, you know, largely, you know, that could have been, um, the, you know, that could have been the beginning of the, uh, his things were probably numbered on some level. There's a there's a moment in the book where you talk about Black Lives Matter and how their bold demands for justice caught some off guard in our country. But you quickly point out that now is not a moment for respectability politics, that the problems in the black that the black community faces will not be rectified with civility and decorum. And the major systemic changes that are needed require bold, clear and unapologetic activism like that of Black Lives Matter. Do you want to expand on this a little bit? Yes. I mean, what you see in the black community, there's been a segment of the black community, not the entire black community, but there's always been this, and it really started in the late 19th century, respectability politics, meaning that somehow black people get educated if they, you know, dress a certain way, if they talk a certain way, if they behave a certain way, or worship a certain way, um, they will be respected by the larger society. They will, you know, they will, they're, they're, those prejudices and those racism and stuff that has largely been a, 
largely deeply entrenched in an endemic in society would eventually eradicate itself. Well, we saw at that time, you know, racism actually increased during the late 19th and early 20th centuries on some levels as well. So, we, I mean, respectability politics by and large, at the end of the day, I've always seen every area, whether it's after, been after World War II, during the, um, you know, during the early, late 19th century, uh, whenever that's been the case, even, and there's been no evidence that white America, second segments of white America, have changed their attitudes toward white and toward blacks you know, as well. So I think it's kind of a fallacy. I think they, it's almost like putting the blame on, it's almost like, I, I, kind of, I almost look at it as a form of Stockholm Syndrome, uh, you know what I mean? Um, because mm-hmm. I think it's almost, you're, you're, you're blaming yourselves for some other, uh, other people's attitudes towards you, and, you know, how they perceive you. And, and I think that, um, you know, you know, dressing well and, you know, wearing a suit and tie and all that is fine, but it's not going to take care of systemic racism, Okay. It's not going to do that, you know. It's not going to, you know. Of course, there's a diehard racist. It's not going to make a neo-Nazi or cook claim and probably like you any better, no matter how you dress. So, you know, what you wear or how you speak. I mean, they still have that uh, for some of them. No, I mean, certain white people can change their attitudes once they get around certain people, and they say, well, you know, they, they realize that their attitudes they miss that they had about you, they could get past that skin color and say they're the whites who that probably can't work for. But by and large, is that going to change systemic and deeply entrenched racism in our society, respectability politics? No, there's been no evidence that it has. And I think that's why I feel that um, I think there are certain people, individuals who believe in it, who espouse that respectability politics. I think they're misguided on their level, uh, uh, on a large level. And I think they are in um, denial. And I think that um, 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 I think it's almost kind of like blaming the victim. And I'm not saying people should not try to behave in ways that are, I'm not trying to call for an uncivil society. You know, I'm not trying to call for you know a violence like that at all. But I'm saying a lot of times, you know, that um, when change really began to occur in the United States was pretty much during the late 1960s or the second mature when you saw people like the Black Panthers and saying, you know, fighting for revolution and others, because they gave uh, white America, mainstream America, corporate America on some level, an alternative. They said, you know, you can deal with people like the Dr. Kings and the more moderates, or you can deal with us. And I think, you know, that probably scared people to the bejesus out of people living in Beverly Hills, California, and rural areas in the United States. These people come on TV at late at night, 6.30 and 7 o'clock, you know, with afros and rifles and intelligent people speaking, you know, talk about revolution and turn over the system and everything else. They said, well, you know, people like Martin King Jr. and Whitney Young and others don't look that bad after all. But you know, so, I mean, I think in some cases that I think that um, you know, radicalism and agitation on some level um, have been uh, necessary and have been a necessity or a vital necessity in an effort to uh, uh, you know, for those who have you know considerable power even at that time to begin to surrender. You know, we're in a different world, a different economy on some things than we were in the late sixties, early seventies. But um, those still issues are still there, and I think you're going to find out that. Um, uh, we've seen, like I said, throughout history that there's no evidence that respectability politics will really do much to shift or change systemic racism. It's going to have to be other, more, uh, you know, grassroots efforts in an effort to do that. Yeah, one of, my conclusion, and I'm, I'm about halfway through the book, my big takeaway from, from reading the book and, and from the, the activism work that I've done myself is the only way to heal the systemic racism in America is to fundamentally change our system and institutions, because our systems are inherently racist. We see racism in our healthcare system. We're seeing that right now with the coronavirus. We see racism on our economic system. Uh, we see racism in our political system. And the only way to change our system is through policy and laws, and not just social justice policies. We need policies centered in economic justice that improve the material conditions of black people and people of color and reduce the the black-white wealth gap. Here's where it gets interesting for me is, you know, the progressive policies like Medicare for All, like universal childcare, 
like student debt cancellation, like universal public college and universal basic income, those policies will dramatically improve the material conditions for black Americans. But my question for you, Elwood, is has the progressive movement done enough to reach out and to bring the black community into the movement? Um, You know, in the Democratic primary that we just had, we saw older black voters support Joe Biden to a, in a huge margin, but then we saw younger black voters support Bernie Sanders by an overwhelming margin. You know, what does the progressive movement need to do to kind of bridge this big generational divide we're seeing, where older black voters are more moderate and younger black voters are very progressive? Well, I think there's going to have to be several things. I think the progressive movement, younger progressive movements have tried to work together across racial lines. I think they've always been an effort, and there's always been, you know, segments of the progressive movement that have worked to try to bring in, you know, certainly a, you know, a, race, you know, a racial cohesion. So that's not anything necessarily new. However, right. a lot of times, progressivism, how are you defining progressivism? When I say you, not you in general, I'm talking about overall, euphemistically. Uh, the progressive movement has a lot of times has been more rhetoric as opposed to any kind of substance. Uh, a lot, in a lot of cases, don't get me wrong, I think that there's, you know, certainly, you know, been tremendous groundwork activism over centuries, but I would say since the late 80s and 90s, there's been a lot of people who have identified themselves as progressive, but I mean, they may not be as progressive as they think they are. And I think there's a lot more, you know, there's a difference in being, you know, uh, racially tolerant and, uh, and open-minded as opposed to being progressive. Progressives are people who really, you know, are really looking to, you know, certainly, you know, uh, as you said, democratic socialists and people are really wanting to change the system dramatically. And I think there are a lot of people who may identify themselves as progressives, but they may, they may be more, you know, Liberal, and in some cases, FAUX liberals. Unfortunately, they're not really, really, you know, genuinely uh, progressives at all. They're, they 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 know the code words and the buzzwords, and then how to use the right, right language. But when all said and done, they don't really do any more than anybody else. <laughs> that you know, the centrists or anything else. And I think that's been, that's what the reason I think why so many older blacks. I put in one of my articles I wrote for Medium, which I write for Medium, that they um, black voters tend to be pragmatic voters. We saw that situation in Virginia with the governor Ralph Dortham when he was. Uh, he was either dressed in a Ku Klux Klan outfit or, or a black face. And I thought it was interesting. People were more upset about the black face than they were about the Ku Klux Klan outfit. You know, so I was like, okay. right. <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, black, I know right. black face could be a racial offense. I was like, but, you know, you know, he had a Ku Klux Klan uniform. That was bad enough. But that black face, oh, my God. Right. I mean, he was like, you know, was like, right. you know, like, you know, so I was like, really? I mean, to me, that would be a Ku Klux Klan to me was actually more offensive. But I said to me, but he, you know, he dug his heels and stayed in. Black voters, what I'm getting to is they said 58% of black voters that they polled, as the polls actually said, they wanted, they thought he should stay on and whatever they said because he was doing a lot of things that Virginia has done. He's turned pretty much Northern has actually turned the, the Democrats pretty much run Virginia now. Just talk about you know, uh, you know, they pretty much in the state legislature. They pretty much you know dominate the state legislature. They passed a lot of laws through and everything else as the governor. So what he was, he got health care and everything else. So I think they kind of put a seat to the fire. So okay, look, we're going to support you and we're going to kind of forgive this, but you're going to have to do this, this, and this. And he's kind of you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, really uh, put his money where his mouth is. And, I mean, whether he was a progressive or not, he's definitely an act of progressive um, legislation. So I think older black voters are concerned about kitchen table issues, and I think that's what people mm-hmm. need to be in today. You know, it's easy when you're wealthy and don't have to worry about paying your electric bill or you can have access to health care to, you know, argue about how to spell this word or why about that word or noise pollution and stuff. Like not saying the noise pollution and environmental issues are not important, but when you're trying to make it day-to-day and day, you're worried about basic fundamentally, you know, clothes on your back, you know, health care. You're worried about basic kitchen table issues as well. You don't have, in politics, you don't have permanent, as, um, uh, who was, uh, I think it was Ossie Davis said one time in politics, you don't have permanent friends and permanent enemies. You have permanent interests. And the reality mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, black voters realize they have to be pragmatic voters on that score. They buy these liberals and progressives you know, could they really count so many young people who are supporting Bernie Sanders and stuff to really get to the polls on Election Day? 
maybe, maybe not. You know, historically, you know, white, white voters have never really been out in the street protesting on behalf of black folks too, too much. They might get money to these organizations and stuff, but when it comes right down to it, there's always been a um, uh, fragmentation. And really, when it comes right down to it, can blacks, can blacks be able to really depend on the white left or, or even the radical white left uh, overall at times? Not really. I mean, you know, you know, people of color, uh, you know, a lot of times the white, you know, so-called white liberals is more rhetoric as opposed to substance. And I'm not saying that's everybody. There are certainly white people who put their money where their mouth is and sacrifice to give their life and then dedicate their commitment to social justice, the call to social justice. But a lot of times, many of these, uh, you know, people who profess themselves to be radical and progressive and liberals don't necessarily, um, they talk to talk very well, but when it comes time to execute those plans and everything else, they're not really that reliable. And that's no plan mm. to say that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think many black, older black voters who've lived longer and stuff like that. Even the younger black voters on some level uh, realize that, you know, when it comes to time, you know, to can we really depend on these people? You know, and all that, that historically speaking, there's really been no evidence that you can. Now, that may change, but uh, right now, that's why I think, you know, black voters tend to be pragmatic and they realize they may not necessarily be all that enthusiastic about George, Joseph Biden, but they realize, you know, that he's probably going to be a better alternative than, 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 than um, it's probably going to be likely, they realize the polls are showing that he can get the vote and get some, maybe perhaps the blue-collar votes and other things as well, that white votes are stuff that um, Sanders may not necessarily be able to do, at least at the moment. And I think also, too, that um, uh, uh, many of his followers who support Sanders, are they going to, would, they, would they be able to, you know, uh, carry through, uh, you know, would they follow through on their, on, their, on, their, on their commitments? And I think a lot of times with all these people up that base, they tend to be very, very fleeting. You know, they're kind of very seasonal, I think. You saw that. Yeah, with, I, I, you saw that with the. Sorry, you saw that with the. Um, was the article. Ryan Grimm was an excellent reporter for the Intercept. He writes for the Intercept, or a columnist for the Intercept. Yep, Intercept. Ryan Grimm. He had a piece. He had a piece where it was like a lot of these people who said they were secretly supported Bernie, but they were they were working for Bloomberg, you know, because they were basically, you know, they said, well, you know, uh, Bloomberg's paying me quite a. Bloomberg was paying people quite a bit of money. And one guy said, "Well, this is over. I'm going to have to, um, um, you know, uh, we have bills, things to pay after this. So I'm going to, you know, I secretly support Bernie. I'm going to work for Bloomberg and stuff." But right then and there, that just showed you the, how many how many these white liberals who went and worked for Bloomberg and progressive, even though they were secret, supposedly secretly supporting Bernie. Well, I mean, you still, you know, they had the right to do that. But the point was, there was certainly, you know, there was certainly a principle. They asked one black man why he did not decide to do it. He goes, "Well, I can't sacrifice my principles like that, and, and my principles in that manner." So my point: I'm not mm-hmm. saying all white liberals are unprincipled. No, I'm not saying that at all. No, but I'm saying that I mean, it shows you that um, how fleeting some of these people, you know, progressives can really, really, you know, really, really be. You know, and I think um, and class. Can be a factor. And this is not saying that, look, you'll find a plenty of conservatives are the same way. A lot of conservatives who want to be the next A quarter, they want to be the next whatever, they can be just as opportunistic and you know, as well. So, I mean, it's not, it it's not any, there's no political ideology has a monopoly on opportunism. But the point is yeah. that um, yeah, you asked about, about black and black in the black community have realized, historically speaking, can, you know, uh, uh, sometimes even white liberals have not always been the best allies. Yeah, one thing I think that's well said. One thing that I I find a lot of hope is that even though you know Joe Biden's a nominee and we've got to get rid of Donald Trump, he is the worst president in modern history, and I think we will. But one of the things that gives me a lot of hope is that when you look at the exit polling from every single primary state, the overwhelming majority, like we're talking seventy percent of Democratic voters, overwhelmingly supported Bernie Sanders' bold progressive agenda. So that gives me a lot of hope. It's like they want Bernie's policy, but they were just afraid on the whole electability thing. And I think that has a lot to do with just our corporate media landscape and how our corporate media landscape is constantly, you know, demonizing progressivism and policies like Medicare for all. Like, I mean, I don't remember one time that CNN or MSNBC had a working class, a black working class family or a white working class family 
on their network during the primary and talked about how much money they would save and what it would mean for them to have Medicare for all, right, or to have universal child care. What I heard was billionaires on CNN saying, like, oh, we can't afford that. You know what I mean? So, so the way the media landscape worked out, I could see why if people only watch CNN and MSNBC, I could see how they could come to the conclusion that, yeah, Bernie Sanders probably can't, isn't very electable. But when you talk to the everyday Americans, whether they're black, white, or brown, and they're working 50, 40 hours a week, and they're not getting ahead, and they're struggling, you see that, like, and, they, and these people realize their politicians are so disconnected from them. When you talk to those folks, you're like, oh, I see how Bernie could win, because people are just tired of the status quo. They're tired of working so hard and not getting ahead. So I guess what I'm just saying is, like, the silver lining for me in our Democratic primary is that people do support bold progressive policies. They're just afraid of, it's almost like they're afraid of the change that we need to heal this nation. <laughs> they're afraid that that bold agenda could win. And I think of, I think if Joe Biden is going to win, he needs to adopt some of Bernie's policies because, you know, it's like Donald Trump, I, I disagree with everything he stands for, but how did he win the 2016 election? He won by exciting his base with bold promises, right? He was going to build a wall, you know, Maybe they were lies, but like he knew how he knew how to feed his base and give his base what he wanted. And guess what? His base showed up for him. Meanwhile, you look at how the Democrats run for office and a lot of the majority of the Democratic electorate wants a single payer health care system. The majority of the Democratic electorate wants a Green New Deal. You know, the majority of Democratic voters want universal child care. Yet. Biden is running away from or scared to support and fight for the policies that will excite Democratic voters and, and, and get them to the polls and show up. Because I think what a lot of people that are outside of the vote blue no matter who bubble don't realize is that, yeah, that will get a lot of people to the polls, vote blue no matter who. But there's like 10 to 20 million voters that like they need something more, right? They need something more than just like Biden's not Trump. Like you've got to give them something to vote for. And so that's why, you know, as an activist, I've pu pushed Biden and, and other youth organizations and, and black youth-led organizations are pushing Biden to embrace more of a progressive agenda so he, we can excite a bigger base than just the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, right? Biden has to win over the progressives. He's got to win the independents, the leftists, the youth. And those people want to see big change. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, we've got to get Absolutely. people excited. No, but, uh, yeah, you said it for perfectly. What is happening is, yes, I think Biden already has made concessions, even about, about student reform and some of those things as well, health care. Because in order, people are saying, look, I think, unfortunately, what he didn't do with Hillary Clinton in 2016, say what you want to say about Donald Trump, but in 2016, he did make an effort. You, you, you understood his message, jobs, 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 let's get America back to work. And I said in my essay, one of my essays, I don't know if you saw that one yet, but I said, or maybe my introduction where I said that um, one of the reasons why Donald Trump was able to be effective in 2016 is because he appealed to because uh, uh, I think there was a segment of Donald who voted for Donald Trump for economic reasons, yes. Don't get me wrong, race, I think there was a segment who definitely voted for him for race, but I think there was also a segment who voted for him for economic reasons. And there were also people who voted for Trump who may have been quiet about Trump. I think some of them in 2018 came back and, and, and um, you know, suburban voters fed in as well, suburban white women, and, and voted for um, um, uh, Democrats in, in 2018. But in 2016, I think a lot of people thought some of the rhetoric he was espousing was just, you know, what else, just bluster. When he gets it, he's not going to really use that kind of language. Not enough, so he just, he's just doing that to win, whatever. I think a lot of people didn't really think he was going to actually really, you know, uh, you know, continue with that type of language, a segment of him. 
but I think as well, but I feel that, um, so I think there were people who voted for it for economic reasons, but there were certainly some who voted for race. With Sanders uh, as well, um, I, I think, you know, his supporters, you know, they're saying, yes, they're already telling Joe Biden, you know, well, we want this. Or what, what, and they're basically saying, in so many words, if you don't provide this, we will consider, we will consider a stay home election day. You know, and I think that, uh, you know, and I think already Biden's giving it as well, uh, you know, saying he wants to give it concessions. I think he realizes, too, in order, because right now he's a very weak, he's still a relatively weak candidate, even though he's a Democratic nominee. I think he doesn't have really that rock-solid support. I think there's still issues about Biden, you know, I mean, his, as far as his, um, you know, his mental, uh, you know, acuity and stuff like that as well. And I think that Republicans are going to certainly, you know, try to play all those weaknesses and stuff where they perceive to be. You know, Trump's got a, a total slip of his own issues. But I think Biden, as a front-runner, I still think he's a relatively weak, uh, weak, you know, uh, nominee. And I think he's yeah. going to have to really make some concessions. I don't think, you know, so I, think, I think he and his campaign and the people around him and surrogates and donors and things about that as well. And I think so he's realized in order to um, become the president, the 46th president of the United States, he is going to have to make some, you know, uh, it's going to have to be some concessions made on the front end already as well. As well. Now, well Cosmic and others have, you know, pretty much, uh, 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 you know, uh, stated as such. Right. Well, the way I look at it, like, he can either move right and try to win over moderate Republicans, or he can try to move left and win over, you know, independents, leftists, the youth. And it's like, why? There was a poll two days ago, 96% of Republicans vote are going to vote for Donald Trump. They support him. So, like, why would you try to win over Republicans? Like, it's like chasing a unicorn. Like, yeah, you're not going to beat... Exactly. You're not going to beat Trump trying to win over Republicans. You're going to beat them by energizing the, the left, by energizing youth, by energizing Democrats, by energizing independents. So it's just like, by him moving left, not only will he beat Trump, you know, and win, it's also a win for America because left leftist policies economically help working people. So I just, I think that sometimes this is the disconnect in Washington, D.C. Where I think the Democrat the, Party, yeah, I think the Democrat Party at some levels has done that. I think that with establishment, you were talking about earlier about, you know, how NBC and those places have never had a working class black family or, or white, and they had not, you're right, or Latino family, they had not. I thought, and you just, when I look at what Bernie was with the first initial primaries, I think when he won Iowa and he won New Hampshire, they almost, some of the people on MSNBC, the supposedly liberal network, had a meltdown almost. You know, like, yeah, uh, they did. Chris Matthews, they removed him, they moved him off. And they, you know, he actually had, they pretty much removed him out of the, out of his position. He, because, you know, <laughs> he, because I think that, uh, he made a comment about comparing to Nazi Germany and some other things and stuff as well. And, you know, right. You know, no, it was things. outrageous. But, and, and the other part that people don't realize is like the 10 never Trump Republicans that you hear every day on CNN and MSNBC, that's right. 10. There's 10. 10 votes isn't going to beat millions. Like, there are not enough never-Trump Republicans to get us the White House. There are enough independents, leftists, democratic socialists, youth voters. There's millions of people in the progressive movement that Biden can win over to win the White House. And we have a better chance of winning, if Biden does that, than trying to appeal to some of these never-Trump Republicans. The never-Trump Republicans, they hate Donald Trump, they know who he is, and they're going to vote against him no matter what. Correct. It's these voters who need to see, like, they want the Democratic Party to stand for something more than just being the anti-Trump party. And when we have this amount of inequality in our society, I, as a lifelong Democrat, firmly believe that our party needs to be more than the Democratic Party. The American people need the Democratic Party to fight for them, to fight for programs that will improve their lives and Absolutely. policies that will improve their lives. So go out there and fight for those policies and win the White House. That's how you do it. You, you give people a bold vision and you fight for it, you know, and you make them believe in these policies. So I think if, if Biden does that and embraces a lot of what Bernie was fighting for, I think Biden wins. And I think America wins. 
if Biden tries to kind of take the left for granted and shame the left, and there's all this shaming going on on Twitter where people are shaming voters on the left, and that's kind of what they did in 2016, it didn't work. Like, you can't shame voters to get them to vote for you. You've got to energize, inspire, and appeal to them. It's pretty basic. Like, that's how you get out the vote. You don't get out the vote by telling people to sit down and shut up and be quiet. Like, that's not a very good GOTV strategy as someone who works in politics. So, um, Elwood, I have had such a pleasure talking with you today. We have, we went over time. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble from my producers. We are at an hour, we're at an hour and like 15 minutes. But, um, where can people get your book? Because I really want people to read this book. Where can people pick up Keeping It Real? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Keeping It Real is available on Amazon. It's available at any bookstores all across the nation. You can pick it, add it on any website. You can, um, bookstores, uh, all bookstore chains, uh, throughout the nation. It's called Keeping It Real Essays on Race in Contemporary America. And it was published by the University of Chicago Press. And, um, you know, as Ryan said, um, my name is uh, Dr. Elwood Watson, and I hope you uh, have a chance to purchase the book. And, you know, feel free to contact me at, through Twitter. You can contact me through my uh, campus email and other avenues as well. But that's where you what's can your Twitter? Book. What's your Twitter, Twitter handle so at people Bleach can Bread. follow you? At Bleach Bread, like Bleach, B-R-E-D, at Bleach Bread, B-L-E-A, speaking of Bleach, at Bleach Bread. B-R-E-D, Bleach Bread. That's how you spell it. That's where you can reach me on Twitter. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, this conversation today. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much, too, and, and, and take care. Okay. You okay. too. Bye-bye. All right. That was a great conversation. Yes, we went a little long today. A and, little uh, bit. Before I, mm-hmm. before I close out the show, I, I want to thank my VIP uh, Patreons, uh, Alan Wood, Brian Oswald, Chris Kaiser, Efron Bodakis, Eileen O'Farrell, Elizabeth Kim, John Lloyd, Joseph Mesaros, Marie Fancher, Ruben Sanchez Jr., and Russell Whitworth. They are my, they sponsor the podcast and help my grassroots activism. If you also want to become a VIP Patreon, you can go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash proud resistor. Uh, and uh, one more thing before we close out the show, I have to tell you about our new sponsor, uh, the Clean Phone Pro. Yeah. Now, more than ever, we are thinking about our hygiene. We are washing our hands and sneezing into our arm, but we are still taking a huge carrier of virus with us everywhere. Our phones, they're vectors for disease, and we rarely clean them. We are constantly touching our phones with our hands and even pressing them to our face, like me during this podcast. Exactly. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's time to take cleaning your phone Seriously, the Clean Phone Pro sanitizer uses medically proven UV light technology to kill 99.9% of all bacteria that comes in contact with your phone. Better than wipes and safe for your device, the Clean Phone Pro gets every inch of your phone clean with nine high-power UVC lights. Dedicated wireless charging pad on top of the chamber. You can be sanitizing other items while wirelessly charging your phone. Well, I, I need this. Or just use the Clean Phone Pro as your go-to charging station anytime. Go to cleanphone.com today and get one for just $89 in free shipping when you use the code SEXYLIBERAL. If you're serious about hygiene, it's time to get serious about cleaning your phone. Go to cleanphone.com and keep your phone truly clean. Remember, use the code SEXYLIBERAL for two-day free shipping and we'll ship immediately. That's cleanphone.com, the cleanphone.com. Nice. All right. Well, thanks again, guys, for listening to another episode of Amped Up with Proud Resistor, and we will catch you next week with an all-new episode. Stay safe out there.